0: Welcome to the Tech and Maine Presents podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Maine, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now,
1: here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Now, usually I don't like to play Cupid, but this one seems like a perfect match. Today's 100th episode is brought to you by Eden Data. Eden Data is a cybersecurity advisory firm focused on helping startups and disruptive internet-based companies build and refine their IT security and compliance. Operating as the organization's virtual chief information security officer, they help protect brand reputation by securing data privacy, they enable industry scalability by ensuring compliance regardless of what market you enter, they'll manage the process we all know and dread, audits, and they lead just about everything else you can think of around cybersecurity. Here's the best part. They do it all in a fixed cost monthly subscription so you aren't getting burned with expensive service hours with no end in sight. Check them out at edendata.com. And now, on to our episode. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech & Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. I'll let each of them introduce themselves, but... I will say we will be speaking to two phenomenal guests today. I wanna to introduce you to Mike Ronicker of Constantine Cannon LLP and James Glenn. Mike, please introduce yourself to the Tech and Main Presents audience. Hi, Sean, thanks. Uh,
0: so I'm Mike Roniker, I'm a partner at Constantine Cannon, as you mentioned. Um, where I represent whistleblowers uh, full-time, uh, along with about 20 other lawyers. We're the, I believe the largest whistleblower practice um, in the country. We have an international presence um, in London as well.
1: Okay. And James, please introduce yourself to the Tech Presents audience.
2: Yes, um, hi, my name's James Glenn. I'm uh, currently Presently an independent security researcher and a musician. Um, I've over the last 10 years, I was involved in a, um, a whistleblower case, I guess Um, the case didn't last the whole 10 years, fortunately, but it almost did. Um, And uh, it all started with just finding a small problem and, um, Everything that led from that. Okay, and
1: there, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why we're doing this episode. And I call this a special episode because we have um, James and Mike here to talk about a very important case in cybersecurity legal history, in really history, you know, itself, and. Mike, I want to ask before we go too much further, is it all right to mention the name of the company that's associated with this case or should we keep it generic?
0: Uh, no, it's it's fine to mention. Uh, it's in the public record, the settlement and um, the allegations as well. Okay. I suppose I, I should mention, that, you know, it was settled without admitting um, to any of the allegations. So just to, uh, putting my lawyer hat squarely on here, you know, any facts we talk about are technically allegations rather than, you know, admitted truth, but obviously James can talk about how things went down from his side.
1: And, and Mike, thank you so much for giving us that that insight and, and sharing that color. So we'll actually just jump right into it. So James was and is the noted whistleblower for the Cisco cybersecurity surveillance camera case. And Mike is his lawyer. And as he stated earlier, he is a part of the law firm Constantine Cannon um, that ended up representing James. And so James, why don't we kick off with having you share a little bit about your daily work and then you know we'll we'll go from there.
2: Well, To get into my daily work, we would probably have to go back to last year when this all came out. Um, There was, uh, I've I've been working in video surveillance for about um, um, almost nine years um, during the whole time that this uh, Cisco case was unfolding. And unfortunately, I was let go. immediately after returning to work after this uh, case came became public so it's my daily work right now involves independent research into um, problems I'm actually looking into uh, inspired by people like yourself looking into um, some kind of outreach that involves like a uh, an ethical influence on the, the people who have the power to make um, proper or improper decisions. Um, in my work in video surveillance with a, with a leading video surveillance company, I was global escalation manager and I dealt with resolving the technical and hot, politically hot or technically hot issues that we faced around the world. And most of that involved dealing with meeting each involved party, uh, stakeholder, or party that might be able to provide a solution and discussing with them the problem, taking, trying to be as objective as possible and take their input and then come back with everything, formulate the right questions to get to the solution that we needed in the shortest amount of time. And through doing that work every day for the last many years, I've reached the conclusion that the vast majority of um, cybersecurity problems, technical problems of any kind are due to miscommunication or human error or human uh, subjectivity um, something is not important to me or that's not my job or that kind of thing okay and so james thank you for sharing
1: that that background and 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 giving us that insight mike i want to ask you to jump in and tell us how did you first become acquainted with James and become acquainted with uh, the Cisco case? Sure.
0: Um, so there's two slightly different answers there. One is my kind of personal trajectory because um, James started this a, a long time before I did. Um, maybe unfortunately for him for how many years it took um, in the end. Um, James first uh, met some attorneys um, at the law firm of Phillips and Cohen uh, when he first was uh you know, bringing his information forward. And um, I joined the scene about three and a half years ago um, when I left the Department of Justice and joined Constantine Cannon. Um, In the interim, James's attorneys had moved to Constantine Cannon and and, uh, he had nicely come along with them. Um, So I first met James. um, I guess it's a little past the midpoint of the case, given how long it took. Um, So we worked together together. Through sort of the the last pieces of the investigation, working with the government, um, and then um, helping behind the scenes um, as we so often do with whistleblowers. You know, we it, the idea behind the law is that you form a public private partnership where um, private resources are available to the government to sort of flesh out um, some of their <laughs> occasionally, you know, their um, tight budgets in terms of um, attorneys and funding to do the kinds of investigations they would like. So we always try to help out. So I joined in the, the final piece of that. Um, and then we helped uh, Marshall James through the settlement process as the government was um, reaching a deal with Cisco that ultimately ended the case um, last, I guess it was the summer summer of 2019. Although time's a little hard to track these days.
1: (laughs) That's true. That's true. Being in the middle of a pandemic, it it seems as though you're in a a time warp. Yeah. (laughs) It's been
0: about 10 years, but it also feels like one day, you know? (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, it's like Greyhound Day, but, you know, obviously it's not, but it feels like it. So, um, James, I want to ask you, how did you get involved in technology and security?
2: Like the the long story or the, you know, the, when I was a little boy and I got my Commodore Plus 4 or
1: If if you want to if you want to go back to the TRS 80 days James, you can you can certainly do that. So That's uh, the
0: one I want to hear. Yeah, so yeah.
1: Let's let's roll hey, with that.
2: I'll start at the beginning and then we'll skip a few points, but it basically I I've always been interested in technology because um, I grew up and um, my childhood spent some of it on a, a naval air station in North Carolina. And there were lots of, you know, fighter jets and, you know, the tran- KC-130s and the every kind of airplane. And I could just name them off. And, you know, that was, that was just something that, that really fascinated me was... You know, the physics, the math behind it, all that kind of stuff. And um, on the military base, you know, there's the PX where you can get computers and all this kind of stuff. And I remember my dad brought home a Commodore Plus 4 um, for one of my birthdays when I was maybe, I don't know, 8 or something. And it, was, it wasn't it was that good. Let's put it that way. I wasn't impressed. And uh, we took that back and we got the Commodore 64 um run magazine started you know typing in the little programs and understanding oh wow you can make this happen and this happen um got more interested in like the databases i wanted to make a database of you know all the animals and plants i found Uh, um i was making music on there just all the it was it fascinated me that you could take a computer and it could reproduce sound and video and all this kind of stuff so then fast forward to you know the 90s when the internet first hit um that was that was like my first um networked technology um experience um some some guys that there was back then it was it was different because we had you know we had the bbs and all that and uh, we had meetups and so you kind of, you're on a BBS for, I'm not sure the age of the average listener. So I'll explain what a BBS is. It's a bulletin board system and uh, you have to have a phone line to dial into it. And it's, it's exactly like the internet, but it's different. And uh, <laughs> it's like social media light. But anyways, you use your modem and your computer and you can dial in if nobody else is connected. You leave your little messages, you make your little changes, and you come back and you check later. So this was interesting. But then some friends that I had been hanging out with in you know, high school, they told me, hey, you know, we got to check out this uh, Netscape Navigator. We got to download this uh, there's some version of Linux that we downloaded and we spent, you know, 24 hours downloading all this stuff, uh, building this image. And then we, we got the Netscape Navigator, pulled down the, you know, some picture of a parrot or something. And we we're you know, just cheering, you know, it spent the whole night to get the internet working. And so basically that was the beginning of, you know, like, wow, this is really cool. Um, I want to do stuff with this. And from there, basically, really, the, the internet is, taught me what I know about technology, um, the access to information, the user's guides. Uh, in the early days, it was more about access to people. Um, people were a little more forthcoming and, I don't know, sincere back then. Uh, I just remember there were there were different, you know, like commands you could use to just talk to someone on another server at a university or another place. And so, there, we exchanged a lot of ideas and it was just everybody, I felt like it was, you know, everybody was hyped up about this, but it was still kind of nerdy because when I would go tell people about it, they were like, hey, come on, dude, come on. And then, and this is really weird because... It was like that all the way until like 2006. And um, I moved to Denmark to be a uh, security consultant um, in 2006. That's a long story. But basically, I, I, in the meantime, I had got a job at a uh, computer leasing company that leased out um, routers and switches and... PCs and all kind of computer equipment and I was blessed to be able to use whatever I wanted and whatever I mean I had to test things and do all of this but I got to you know hey what is a you know what's a router do you know what's a switch do and you know got to see CNA and started building on just curiosity of it and it's I mean if you have the equipment that's that's one of the biggest obstacles if you want to learn, like routing and switching. So especially back in the low computing power days. So um, basically by 2006, um, it, I, like I said, I just came to Denmark uh, to work for a telecommunications company as a security consultant. Uh, I won't name the company, but the biggest company in Denmark. Um, the The iPhone hadn't yet come out, and it was still, it was still like the people who did computer stuff and the other people. And I remember when it went from like my last Nokia, you know, Jack Bauer flip slide phone to. You know, to all the smart technology, and uh, that's when that's when like I, I saw a lot of the challenges beginning, because there were a lot of uh, a lot of fresh blood coming into the into the IT into security, because I think a lot of popular culture. It, it looks really cool. And really, you know, it's like, it looks cool. Like solving a Rubik's cube looks cool. You know, it's like, and so I, I think a lot of people have been drawn into the appeal of it. But, um, as, as I've seen just in my career, it's not always, it's not, it's not for everybody. You know, you have to make a lot of tough decisions and, um, there, there's always a a pressure in any, I mean, this isn't speaking about this case in particular, but in any situation, there's always the pressure between the sales side and the technology side. And the sales side wants, you know, they want tomorrow, today, and the technology guys are like, I'll give you I'll give you the future in one month. Just just give me just leave me alone, you know. And they never get that time alone. And uh so it's just interesting seeing um seeing how everything everything really changed once everybody got access to, you know, the Google and the internet and the smartphone stuff. It kind of I think everyone became an expert at, you know it to some extent or at least they they got to have the they said okay i have the same information as every expert therefore my opinion is worth a lot more than it was you know back then you know
1: oh i i'm i'm sitting here listening to you james and i'm thinking about um the company that i worked for at the time um had an exclusive agreement to sell the iPhone. And so this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And not only to your point, did you become an instant expert, you know, with that, you know, Google access and, you know, the ability to, you know, get on the internet anytime you wanted to, but now you had it in your pocket, right? And so you, you you were an expert, but now you were mobile as well. Right. And so, if a friend had a question, just pull your phone out of your pocket and you look it up. And so, there's so much to what you said. But I think the most important thing is you know, you have this technology, and because it's so consumerized, you're not really aware of, you know, how much of a double edged sword it is, right? You, you're literally carrying a sword in your pocket and you don't even realize it. So I appreciate you sharing um, that perspective and, and that insight. What I want to do is bring us up to the time where you actually started working with Cisco. How How did that come about?
2: Okay, that's basically that came about because like i said in in the end of 2006 i moved to denmark to work for a telecommunications company and within a few months the next year the company decided to i was working for a managed security department of consultants working just for certain big customers to um, I think we were working with the checkpoint security products and some Cisco stuff, but uh, anyway, so it was it was very cool stuff, and um, they this this big company sold the department to another smaller successful Cisco partner, and so basically the entire team that I was on was sold um, to another company and most of the people i i had just got to a new country and i was excited to have a job and so then it was like oh we're going to you know a new interview a new place It it was kind of you know unsettling but um most of my colleagues parted ways at that point and i just kept it pushing and uh joined on with the security team at this, uh, is a Cisco partner in Denmark.
1: Okay. And so you're at the Cisco partner, you're working on the Cisco equipment, the surveillance equipment, and then you find the security flaw with, the equipment. What well, was there
2: in this? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll go back a little bit because it wasn't the, the product, the surveillance product, um, was released after I started working there. It, it didn't, um, it wasn't, we didn't have it at first. Um, my, my primary job was like security stuff. Um, Configuring different different firewall related stuff for complex global situations, um, and like one example, just just as a side note, if you're if you're doing business and your business is in China and outside of China, you have complexities with the data that goes back and forth and so there's we just we did our jobs um configuring firewalls and looking at logs and you know just security diligence um the video surveillance product came in actually to the physical like the land team um and the it's kind of funny to even say it now, but I, initially video surveillance was kind of treated like a LAN product, like an add-on, um, like a wireless access point or, you know, like a little, it was it was like, hey, the guys who put the wires up can also put this up, so let's give them that. And But as I found out working in video surveillance uh, software, that's even perhaps today somewhat, but that's the way video surveillance is also treated in the physical security world. Um, the guys with the guns and the badges are often in charge of the video surveillance network. And many of them are very frustrated and they're going to you know, shoot a server or something because it's not what they signed up for. But that's another, that's another story. Um, Okay. So
1: thank you for for giving us that insight. When you when you initially were aware that there was something amiss, what what was your initial reaction to that?
2: Well, it's initially I was just like, oh wow, this is you know, this is cool. Hey, let's let's check this out, you know, because it was my my colleagues in another department got the product and they just told me hey we got this cool stuff and you know there's if you're into security there's nothing cooler than video surveillance so i was like let me check it out what's the ip address you know and that that was it basically and i was just like i'm going to tear this thing up and it wasn't i mean <laughs> it wasn't uh it wasn't a long drawn out battle let's put it that way <laughs> it's some, everything wasn't obvious at first, but sometimes when you, you know, if you push on something and you hear a bunch of crackling noises, you get a good idea that, okay, there's something here. And, uh, in this case, it was just, uh, just some intuitive exploration of, uh, some open ports. I was just doing things manually. Um, making some presumptions based on the ui and the the layout um it's just just uh intuitive looking at the product and it wasn't like uh i mean later i pulled out tools to quantify what you know all of the different things that were going on but it wasn't like it didn't require like script kitty stuff or you know any, it didn't require any sort of like side injection or you know, it, 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 it's nothing, it's just human human error embodied in software. Um, just some mistakes in concept or mistakes in judgment or assumptions that were based on bad information. And when you put them all together, you have a problem.
1: Okay. And so we're at the point where you've, as you said, been doing some tinkering, you, you see what's going on. And like any good, reasonable person with integrity, you take these findings and you share it and I'm sure you were expecting, you know, a pat on the back, a high five, something, right. Um, what, what happened once you shared, um, what you found?
2: Yeah. Um, i of course, like once, you know, once I realized that there was some, that there were some issues, I you know, tried to put together an email. I talked to one of my colleagues, who's a good friend there. And, uh, said you know i'm a security guy we got to go to got to report this um i glossed over a whole brief section of my life but the reason i ended up working in denmark in the first place was i was um in brussels for the ccia security exam lab exam which i failed but i after failing that exam i went to denmark and uh interviewed for this position and, and accepted it, and the rest was history. But um, this, like the reporting of the problem wasn't, there was nothing uncomfortable about uncomfortable about it or uh, disconcerting is straightforward. Like we have this, you know, system, and if there's an issue you just say, hey guys, here's the problem. And what I expected to happen was basically, and this is, I don't know, maybe it's kind of, uh, in hindsight, I think it was kind of idealistic, but I really expected, you know, the James Glenn vulnerability number, blah, blah, blah. That's what I expected. Um, Because that's, you know, that, like that's the trophy. Like that's what we do it for, um, and that really didn't come about. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: So you were you were expecting the the recognition, the the notoriety that came from having, you know, come up with and and brought to light the
2: flaw. Um, yeah, but I also expected we were, I thought they were going to fix it first and then, you know, and then like, hey, thanks to thanks to James for this big shout out from Cisco because I was very big fan, fan boy of the product. I mean, I had Cisco socks. Uh, my whole apartment was a rack of, you know, routers and switches. Uh, my library is all Cisco. Um, so it wasn't, you know these these are my people and i was like okay yeah cisco security they're you know come on guys let's let's hear it and so it wasn't maybe that wasn't the enthusiasm that i got back but that's that's what i expected
1: okay and so when you when you didn't get that acknowledgement how did that feel
2: well i it was it was a little concerning, but I just thought maybe the it hadn't landed on the right, you know, the right person yet, like the you know like the technical decision maker guy, and so it was. I was just like, okay, this is kind of um, this isn't this isn't what I expected, but let's see let's see what happens, you know. And it it kind of it it wasn't like an instant, like, Hey, we don't want to hear this. It was actually the, you know, the first response was like, um, what, you know, what, what do you think we can do about this? Hmm. What other, what other stuff is, do you think there is, it was, was uh, it was a bit of curiosity about the, about the issue or issues. Okay.
1: And so, Mike, I want to bring you back in because we're we're at the place where James has identified what these flaws are. He's he shared that information. And as you said, you know, everything's a matter of public record. And so there was a space of time where things, you know, had gone, I guess we could say, kind of dormant with, you know, next steps. As, as a former um, government official now, lawyer, what are what are your thoughts on you know where things were lying dormant?
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting because this is in some ways sort of a classic whistleblower story. You know, there's this false idea out there that you know, whistleblowers are troublemakers and they run, you know, run to the government the first time something goes the way they don't like it. Um, But actually I think what James did is very common among our clients. You know, people try to fix it internally. They see something, I mean, like, like all of us at, at some level, we've seen things in our jobs that we thought weren't right and we fixed them. You know, mostly it's tiny little stuff. That's like the day-to-day of work. But when you see something really big, and you try to fix it, if you succeed, that's the end of the story. I mean, that, that's a big success story, but people don't hear of it. You know, maybe it shows up in your personnel evaluation. Hopefully, as a good thing, um, not always. But uh, that's kind of the end of the road. You know, the ones that turn into lawsuits and you know government settlements are the ones where the companies don't listen. They become aware of a problem. They either, they put their heads in the sand, they often sort of lash out at the messenger. Um, and in that sense, they make it much worse. Um, there's There are very few whistleblower cases where the company could not have nipped the whole thing in the bud. Even if you assume they made a mistake at the beginning, they could have fixed it. They had so many chances to fix it. Um, and to me, that goes back to, Sort of a different flavor of James' point about kind of the tension between sales and technology. I think there's kind of a similar tension in a lot of the companies um, in the cases I work on, where maybe you, maybe call it sort of a tension between the business side and and the core services, right? Here, maybe it's tech and sales. In our healthcare cases, it's you know delivering healthcare services and the the business people who just want more and more revenue. And they're the ones who push the limits on what can we build a government for, no matter what the arena is. You know, we know this product is broken. Let's bill for it anyway. We're too far down the line. You know, we know this uh, diagnosis code in the healthcare context is maybe a little fuzzy. We're going to push it. And then each little step, they get a little bit more comfortable breaking rules, and it gets worse and worse. So... I think it, back to your question of sort of this dormancy period, this is where one would have hoped Cisco would have fixed the problem, right? You get a bug report, you fix it, you know, or a vulnerability gets pointed out, you dig into it and you resolve it. And there's, you know, we wouldn't be talking because James and I never would have met. and That that would have been a shame, but, you know, he probably would have had a calmer last
1: decade. (laughs) Oh, well, Mike, that's, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's interesting because James, you would have expected, as Mike just pointed out, that during that dormancy period, things would have been fixed. None of us would have ever met and, you know, life would have gone on as normal, but as we know, it didn't. And so, there's that period where you know you have to you know you're you you meet with the lawyers you know they're they're asking what you know and so now you know there's that period where you have to turn over all of your information and you know the FBI gets involved and you know things obviously start to you know speed up from there what was it like having to you know Talk to the FBI and share that information that you had. What what was going on with
2: that? That's a good question. Uh, the actually that that ties into how this um, became a case and went the way it did because I I went through every channel I could to make sure that the thing the issues were reported and documented and so on. Um, the i had an understanding that we were going to meet with the you know the cisco guys and discuss some things but at any rate whatever allegedly happened with that i wasn't there because i was terminated um so at that point it was you know i i was done with technology um at least i was going to take a break and go to another continent and do something with my hands or something, and uh, I, I just kind of I, I didn't stop thinking about it. But I was just I was like, okay, this is this is how they do. This is um, this is the system, you know. This is the problem, and I was just like, okay, um, that that's bad. And I went about my business. I. I think I started practicing some calligraphy. Um, I learned how to French polish oak wood, a very detailed process, hundreds of layers of lacquer. Um, I just, I did other things, but then uh, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, um, I had my sister call me and say, oh, so what do you, you know, what's up? What's going on? And I told her about my my newfound passion for not technology and she asked why (laughs) and I was like hey you know this you know it's just not it's not cool these people the it's like I don't I don't want to say that any individual didn't have integrity but the sum of all of the decisions made didn't reflect integrity and I just explained to her like hey you know I don't want to be a part of this and um and uh and she was like well what happened and I told her about you know <laughs> and I told her about this problem basically and uh she was she was more concerned she's more um passionate than me and she was more concerned about it than I was because I was more accepting of the of the way things operate to some extent. But uh, I explained to her, like, hey, you know, this isn't something where I personally would like to be involved. It's rather unfortunate that, you know, this situation came about. And I personally don't even want, you know, it's not nice that I know this information and no one else knows this information but i'm not i don't want to associate it with me so i just i told her hey you know i can write up the basics of you know the just put it in a little in a little ball and just say okay here's the you know here's the gist of it there's this and there's this and this and they can send it to she was she knows people in Washington, and so as I said, "You can, you know, send it to whatever people you think you see fit, or whatever, and we'll leave it at that, anonymously, of course." And uh, being my older sister, um, she didn't, she didn't hesitate to, you know, just do it her way. And so basically, the getting involved with the FBI was just my phone ringing. You know hey what's this number and then oh it's the FBI and it was it was on rather short notice that I found out that she had already put me like given them my contact information so basically that's I, I mean I working working with them isn't i say it's not that big a deal or anything, but interacting with them as a private citizen without, you know, 15 attorneys is a little bit different. And it's... At first it was, you know, like I, I talked to some couple of guys there and they're very nice guys and they're very concerned. It was like the uh, counter... Terrorism task force or something at LAX or something like this, and um, is is because of some potential alleged use of the product at an airport in that region around LAX. Um, so, this these guys were really, you know, like they they sounded like. Professional guys, but they also sound like guys you know who carry weapons and have badge and you know do other kind of stuff. So the you know giving them this information was it's kind of like if you're if you were explaining a technical problem to HR or something, you know, is it's like it, they'll listen and they're gonna smile but you're just not sure if it, if it all connected. And um, so I believe I spoke with them a couple of times. And then after that, I, you know, I I was like, okay, this is, you know, they want to, they want to have an ongoing discussion with some other people and all this. And I was like, okay, I told my sister, "Okay, now you have to fix this problem. You find, (laughs) you find some way to deal with this because we, you know, it's it would be more cool to not have like you know, back and forth, you know, as a private person between them. And it's like I respect their work and it's like solving mysteries and all that is really cool, but it's you know that's a lot to." that's a lot to handle for that's I mean yeah that's it's that was the point where I just said this whatever problems these people have created by the decisions they made is not my problem and I'm not going to you know put myself out there you know in that way un unaffiliated and unprotected so that's when mike and all the rest of the team came in um too many to count okay so mike
1: let's let's have you piggyback on that so at this point you're brought in are you having the FBI now filter the questions through you and the law firm before they reach out to James or is it you know you and James are on conference calls with them kind of like we're doing now with the podcast how how exactly does that work
0: you know that that's a good question and it was while I was still at DOJ so James may have to answer on the specifics i can tell you generally you know we um, we don't get between the government and a witness they want to talk to, right? We, we're there to sort of help make the individual comfortable, understand any sort of legal pitfalls um, or, you know, things to be careful around that sort of thing. Um, but I actually don't know, James, did you talk directly to FBI after you brought attorneys on board or were you behind the scenes then?
2: No, fortunately after the, after we got the attorneys involved, um, I spoke with them one more time and said, hey, look, guys, you know, thanks a lot. This was really cool, but um, we're going to go this way now. And uh, everything after that was really just um, like, I put together some information that was kind of dissecting, like, okay, here's, here's a semi-exhaustive list of all the things. And, and I made like a little demo mildly unprofessional demo video of um the like showing all of the exploits and then a you know final grand exploit with was a remote takeover and all this kind of stuff um yeah and i actually would like to emphasize that in the video which i made it so this isn't uh this isn't necessarily alleged but it is just a video, so it, it could be fakes, But obviously, I created it, and so I'm I'm alleging that it's not fake. Um, but in this, <laughs> in this video, seriously, in this video, um, it's it, I show that it's possible to basically, when one of these systems is running, to once you know about this combination of issues, you can prepare a package. Contact of the system, have it connect back to you. You have a you. You can get remote root access, uh, delete all, of, clean up all of the you know naughty stuff, and it. I mean, it was very simple, but it was it was requiring a lot of the issues that were independently listed, and this isn't a criticism of cisco in particular but maybe the cve system isn't um maybe it's too granular because if you slice something up small enough everything is like oh yeah that's a three that's a two that's a five but if you put those together and you can weave that thread you give me five twos and i will own your computer you know it's 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 not. It's not fair to minimize, and isolate when it's actually the combination of things that. I mean, that's what makes a computer work is a combination of complex ideas, and it's like obviously that's the way an exploit is going to work. It's not always just going to be, oh, this new thing has a hole in it, and we're going to use this to jam through that hole. It's you now sometimes it's, it's. Uh, complicated
1: okay so james i'm thinking of something and we're talking obviously about you know security cameras surveillance software that's being used at you know various institutions various facilities how similar is this situation to something that a consumer may be familiar with along the lines of um Recently, we've seen that you know, um, camera companies have been you know hacked, broken into, and you know someone sitting you know halfway around the world is looking in on you know a a baby's room and is actually interacting with the child. How how similar is that to the situation that we're talking about here with um, the Cisco case?
2: Well, a lot of those. Uh, I- seen a lot of stuff like this in, in my career in video surveillance and most of that is just uh, I, would, I would usually say it's just somebody taking it out of the box and connecting it to the internet. It's a faulty uh, setup but um, this, is, this is kind of what I was, was saying earlier. Maybe everybody feels like they're an expert these days. I pulled it out of the box the green light came on, the amber light came on I can see the picture, we're done. And if you overlook, you know, reading all that stuff in there and it says, hey, if you don't do this, if you don't change this password, so most of those I don't I don't think are hacks. I think they're they mistakes um on the part of the user. There are a few companies that I have come across um that I wouldn't name particularly, but There are some companies that make products that don't inherently have enough security to comfort a knowledgeable user. Um, And I I would advise that most people either don't get these kind of video products or they um, maybe... If you if you're getting it because you live in a mansion or you have you know whatever kind of assets you want to protect, spend the extra whatever it costs to get what I would call a real surveillance system. Um, you aren't going to be checking it on on the internet, um, at least not directly. There it's 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 just one of my favorite subjects but it's closed circuit television you know it used to be that that thing was it was a closed system and uh the reason for that it's like if you if you have an airport a military facility um any kind of institution uh, healthcare, you can't have some troll from whatever place you know getting on and you just can't have this kind of stuff and what I what I see is a gradual we're pushing towards like yeah but this is okay yeah but this isn't so bad yeah but this isn't so bad and we're just edging towards you know everything's the internet of things basically um we're gonna put all this stuff online knowing knowing that it's not ready for it and it's not right because the person who gets it out first is gonna you know get the market share and this and that and the other and the people who are like oh let's we're gonna give you a responsible product you know they're they're late to the game and maybe the consumer wants the one that has the familiar logo well it's it's funny because
1: yeah, that first mover advantage is often what drives a lot of these decisions. Right, it, the the product, the software might not be quite ready for prime time, but we know that our competitor, you know, is only two weeks away from releasing theirs, and so, you know, we need to get ours out there first so that you know our name becomes the verb, right? Um,
2: or they just the competitor just put it out last month and everybody's talking about them and they're on the trade magazines their booth at the trade show is popping that's that's all it takes and it's like we got to do we need one of those what is that we need that um and the the there are some people and i think in every company there are some like some real brilliant innovators, some geniuses, some, you know, some Einsteins, whatever, whatever imaginary genius you want to pick for the day. But it's, there are these bright people, but their maybe their contribution is filtered through not just the framework that, that they're working under of these assignments. And, you know, the, they're, they're given some kinds of low expectations sometimes, in and in the the highest expectation is for the time, um, and the lowest expectation is for the quality because quality can be addressed later, or maybe it won't. What percentage of users will it hit, or you know this kind of thing? But if it didn't come out and you said it was coming out, that's a problem, you know. So. It's I think it the the security flaws you could you could probably look at do analysis of companies um, you know release schedules, patching schedules, you know the how how much fun they have, you know, their social media, and see you know see what their where their focus lies and it's it's i just think that these days the the security problems are because of um critical thinking problems and uh and the the attitude towards the the job it's like some people want that job more than anything and some people got that job and so they're going to do it and it's and it's like there's a different if you don't feel a personal responsibility with the you know it's a cliche but you do have great power if you're the one guy writing the twitter update or you know writing in the whatever code for facebook or something you have some power and it's like i mean there's there's all kind there's a whole rainbow of issues to cover there but at the very least write secure code that you know does what it says it does and if you don't have time to do that you know you have to pull the you know pull the brakes like hey we aren't ready it's not ready and the it's just there's there's a clear there's a clear lack of concern for that, for real security, and I've I, I don't think it's a new thing. I've I've seen it developing, you know, for the last the two thousands, and it's. I I really believe that there's a, it's been we've gone from like you know Kevin Mitnick and. Uh, fiber optic and rogue federal agent and LOD versus mod we've gone from like hacker stuff to like a very like it's almost like a the social the social aspects of it have eclipsed the like let's be so let's be serious let's be super bad at this let's you know let's kill it guys let's Let's get this done. And that's maybe, maybe part of this is my, re- like I've, I've been out of the social media in the internet. I, I, I like to read information and I, I don't go to the same whale well all the time. So I'm just looking for info. And I just recently started paying attention to people who don't exist in real life, except for on the internet to me and it's it's very interesting that a lot of a lot of the assumptions i made about where i.t security and infosec and all this was headed they were wrong and um, i thought that this access to all this technology and the information and now you don't have to like beg somebody to bring you over a copy of some manual or something. You can just, everything you can look up. I thought everybody was going to level up and, you know, be, you know, be all that you can be. I've, you know, but it's, it's really not, it's not that it's more from what I can see, at least in the, in the high profile people is a lot of, uh, don't admire me for, for what what we do and what we stand for. It's look at it, look at how we look. Look at what we say. Look at what we think. And I'm, I'm really interested in finding who the critical thinking people are who, who are laying low in this industry, um, and finding out what's you know what's going on and why because that's. That's what I see is is one of the problems driving, you know, and the, all these issues that lead to like the ransomware and the malware and the, all the hospitals getting embarrassed and the public institutions. Is, it, the fact that that it still is possible or still happens with the regularity it does, in the I try to find out like why is this still happening? Oh, they say um, you can never fix all the problems. And it's like, yeah, but how many leaked videos have you seen from Area 51? They don't—they have video surveillance, don't they? So they, I'm sure that they figured out how to keep it from getting out. And it's like, everybody doesn't, I mean, not everybody is gonna treat their system like Area 51, but as soon as you take it down and you say, oh yeah, we aren't that serious, it's not like you just take it down a notch. It just starts floating down and it'll just keep going down unless there's some force to say, hey, we need to we need to be more vigilant. And so I think the to sum all that up, I think the trend is towards less vigilance and towards complacency with you know just the awe of look at look at this thing we created. It's working and you just get less vigilant. Until you get hit with something, and then the cycle, you're you're up for a minute, and then it's just okay. It's not so bad, and just excuses instead of um, targeted targeted addressing problems through looking at a whole system and how is the system po- supposed to work? What is it supposed to do, and what is it not supposed to do, and what are the consequences of failure in this regard in this regard in this regard. Um, basically I don't I don't want to rant on, on professionalism in the industry, but I just seen a lot of maybe Twitter isn't the right place, but I've seen a lot of people who uh, could could step the game up a little bit because it's you know it it's it's about being very good at something. That's that should be the main the main thing is you know the the thinking, the you know the the MacGyver aspect of it. You know you can you can figure something out, and um, is is coding is cool and all that kind of stuff is cool. But it's you know the the problem solving aspect of it is the part that you can use ten years from now because it's not going to be the same technology. And if you're, if you're just a, associating with a technology or a brand or a particular, just a particular hot thing it's it's difficult. It needs to be tackling the concepts of, you know, people have digital information that needs to be protected, you know, something broad or, and I just, I see a lot of, I'm I'm not impressed with a lot of what I've seen so far. That's all I can say. I just I wish it, I wish it was different. And maybe maybe these guys are in the underground, and I haven't found the right website or deep web or something. But it's there's the the people who are asking the tech people to make decisions don't know what they're asking them to do so it's up to the tech people to take on the you know the ethical part of it and be like hey this this is broken buddy no this is broken you know and then you you don't you don't put something out for a customer to find out the problem you already knew about thank you for listening to part one of our 100th episode
1: stay tuned next week for part two
0: You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends, and thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.